Mac Power Users, Episode 234, Mac Power Users Live, recorded on January 3rd, 2014. back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. Hey, David. Hello, Katie Floyd. How are you? I'm doing well. And you know, it's the first Saturday of the month, so you know what that means. I always look forward to the first Saturday of the month, so I get to go online and talk to some of our friends and, and do some follow-up for Mac Power Users Live. Yeah, I, I've, I've really enjoyed these shows, and, and they will continue. Uh, into the, I hope I said 2015, because I had 2014 in the show notes. You know, I always do that the first little bit of the year, so... Maybe that was my one of my first flubs and certainly won't be the last of the year. It's okay. It just tells us you're human. I well, you you say that or but, cling on. Yeah. <laughs> the jury's still out. <laughs> so, uh, well, we are we are kicking off this year. Uh we always like to bring in a guest for uh MPU Live and we're kicking off with a great one. Um, and our good friend Bradley Chambers is uh here to join us again for our first segment of our first MPU of the new year. Welcome back to the show, Bradley. Hey, Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year. Now, you were mentioning uh, before the show that your first appearance on Mac Power Users was actually on New Year's of 2014. It was. I, I, I have this weird memory where I can remember things that are very irrelevant. And so I remember that I, I was on the show and then immediately after my wife and I went and saw Divergent, the movie in the theaters. And we don't go to the movies often. So I guess like my whole... It's easy to remember that because I maybe saw three movies last year. Okay. And yeah, and I remember that was the very first night we had put my youngest son in his crib for the first time. He'd been sleeping in a, like a sleeper next to us. So again, I can remember strange, strange facts. Okay. Well, I'm glad Mac Power users had such a, such an impact on you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but one of the things we, we wanted to, to talk about is is you had a, a great uh, article for The Sweet Setup. Uh, you're one of the regular contributors over there. And, you know, you were talking about some things that are good to do. You know, New Year, we start thinking about things. We don't want to call them resolutions. We've done resolutions to death now. Uh, everybody's done resolutions to death. But, you know, New Year is when we start thinking about probably things that we could do better, things that we didn't do so well last year. What are some of the things that we like to change? And, you know, you, you gave us a list of some things that we could do better in the new year. And, and we'll put a link to that that article in the show notes. But one of the things that really resonated with me as you said, you know, this is a great time of year uh, to go back and start looking and doing an audit of, of some of your subscriptions and some of your services. And I thought, you know, I really need to do that. And, and so I, I, I uh, messaged you on Twitter and said, how about coming on the show and talking about that so that I can, I can learn from you and, and maybe get some of my accounts in order. Oh, yeah, because, you know, we often it's so easy to sign up for things nowadays, even free services, you know, social networks that you, you subscribe to that you don't even need anymore. And, you know, this is especially important if you don't use unique passwords across all your websites as well. And so you have these random accounts out there that you really just don't use. And so, you know, one of the good example I think I gave you guys in the opening was, you know, if you if you used to be a GoDaddy customer and you now use Hover, you know, go and delete your GoDaddy account. I mean, these things that you're not using, just just delete them. You know, if you use one password, kind of scroll through that list and say, you know, am I using this? If not, let's get rid of the account. Um, and it's it's equally as important with paid subscriptions. I mean, even things that are you know, five dollars a month. You know, the old adage is oh, it costs less than a cup of coffee. But if you're not using something, let's get rid of it. 
Yeah, I've got a uh, numbers spreadsheet. And every time I sign up for something that's going to be X dollars every month or year or quarter, I always add that to it. And I can see a running tally of how much I'm bleeding. And also, it just gives me a nice way to keep track of the stuff that I've signed up for. So like a a numbers spreadsheet is another good way to to handle that. Well, and, you know, it's one of those things where if I told you, like, I don't know, like, iCloud pricing, for example, that the fact that the 20 gigabyte is a dollar a month or even let's say 99 cents, as they say, that seems like nothing. But then if I told you, hey, it's twelve dollars a year. Well, if you don't really need it, it's still twelve dollars. I mean, that's not you know to me, twelve dollars a year sounds a whole lot different than a dollar a month. Well, that's not that's, I think, one that a lot of people need, though. But but I, I get your point. There are a lot of services out there that we subscribe to because they're 99 cents a month or they're you know, uh, $6 a month or, 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 you know, $25 a year or, or whatever it is. But then when you go back and you think by the time it comes down to renew, do I really need it? No, oh, it just auto renewed. Well, you know, it's only 25 bucks. I'll, I'll just leave it. Well, this is why I really like to pay for things yearly if possible, because it's, it's just, it's a, it's a middle game with me. And it's like, like we don't have cable and I wrote a, a long guide on cutting the cord over at tools and toys. And my wife and I, you know, Often we'll just say, hey, should we get cable back? And then we'll, like, I'll look and it'll cost me 60 to $80 a month to add cable back. And, and that doesn't, to me, you know, 60 to $80 a month isn't a lot of money. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not like it's $500 a month, but it's when we say, okay, we've not had cable for two years now. Let's take that amount times 24. Is cable worth it to us? It's immediately not because that's what you're paying. And I mean, even things like you know Spotify and Beats and, and Audio, like you know, they're great services. But if you if you're not in the habit of buying new music all the time, maybe you don't save money by paying for these. You know, obviously it's a great way to find new music, but these little ten dollar costs really add up over time. Yeah. So, what are the tools that that you recommend using to to track all this stuff? I mean, the number one thing for me is one password. Be, you yeah. know, and from just a, a collection standpoint, outside of tracking the financial stuff, is you know go through here and say, okay, like go through your list of logins, and again, if, even if it's something free, like let's say app.net, do you use that anymore? No, maybe go through and delete your account, or you know, some of the things I'll, I'll you know, if, if they don't make it easy to delete your account, which a lot of websites are known for that. I'll go th- go through and change my email address to like my what I consider to be my spam address, and so I can get it kind of get it out. And I might even delete it out of one password at that point and just be done with it. I mean, if it, that website gets hacked, you know, who cares? I have a unique password and it's using a spam email address. Uh, but then, you know, any way you can track these you know, these financial things, the better. What well, I you usually know, but do- before you move on, that that's a great point because the more services that you have out there, even if these are just dead and inactive accounts, they, they are yet more vectors that people can use to to come in and and have access to you. Because especially if this was an account that you created three, four, five years ago and you've forgotten, you know, three, four, five years ago, you may not have been using some of the best practices that you're using now. Maybe you used a really bad password. Maybe you've got some of your personal information in there. Those are really the accounts that you need to go through and you need to clean up, you know, put obscure data in, or if you can just delete them all together, because when that site gets hacked and it will at some point get hacked or it will sell your information or it will do something, that's when you're really going to be at risk because you've completely forgotten about it. You've completely forgotten that it's out there. Oh, absolutely. And and one password makes it so easy to sign up for things in reality because you're, you know, command slashing your way through uh, the, the logins, the setup, you know, it just makes it really easy. You can input your personal information so easily. 
But sometimes that can be a bad thing. It's, it's kind of like um, how it's super easy to sign into things with Twitter and Facebook. But then all these services have access to those accounts and you kind of forget, well, hey, this random website I signed in you know, through Twitter. Well, you know, I know maybe it has like decent permissions, but what else can they see that they don't really even need to see, especially if you're not using the service anymore? Yeah, you know, I, if someone requires me to use Twitter or Facebook for a sign in, I usually just don't join I mean, there has to be an option for an individual account or the service has to be really compelling for me to want to to combine those things. I'm not a fan of these. Yeah, I understand why they do it, but I, I think it's a mistake. I agree. I mean, it, I, two two things. Number one, if it's a service I really, really use, I can see myself using it longer than I may be to Twitter. Uh, a good, you know, so if it's like a, a good example is the Get Satisfaction uh, customer service uh, portal. A lot of companies that I work with, they use that. And so I'm, I'm frequently talking to to the you know companies, especially for the, some of the products we use at work. Well, you know, that's more important to me than my Twitter login. So I can just take the time and set up a manual account. But so if it's something but on the flip side, if it's something I don't use that often, why do I want to give them access to my Twitter account? Even if it's just to maybe see a little bit more information, even if they can't post for me, I I agree with you. I just let me just set up an account and I'll delete my account later if I don't want it. Yeah. Uh, another uh, tip in this vein is when you sign up for an automatically renewing service, like a few years ago, I thought, well, I'm going to because I really loved baseball as a kid. And I thought, well, I'm going to sign up for the MLB for a year and see how much I like it and how much I watch it. Maybe I'll get into watching baseball again. And the experiment failed. I'm just too busy to watch sports. I mean, I, I don't even know. I guess we're in postseason in football now. I, I have no clue who's good and who's bad this year. I just don't have time. And uh, so I realized about a month or two into it that the MLB thing was a waste of money. <laughs> and But I thought, well, maybe I'll watch some games for the rest of the season. And I didn't want to unsubscribe right then. But then they have the auto-renewing subs subscription, which is a trap as easy to fall into. And um, as you're going through your subscriptions, I would also recommend look at them and see if it's something you want to auto-renew or not. And if it's not, use whatever your system is to make sure that you unsubscribe at the right time, like I had. Um, at the end of the baseball season that year, OmniFocus said, hey, time to unsubscribe from MLB. And I went in and unsubscribed and turned off the auto renew and all that stuff. Um, so, you know, with just a little bit of planning and using the tools we talk about all the time on the show, you can save yourself some money and probably some frustration. And why not do that audit at the beginning of the year? Well, there's a reason these things auto renew. It's because people forget. Uh, a yeah. good example is I bought a Chromecast a few weeks ago, and it came with like a free three month trial of Google Play All Access, which is a really neat service. And I, you know, I thought I'd, tr I'd try it. I, probably, I don't know that I'll keep it because I don't listen to enough music to warrant paying for something monthly. But so I just have a task and OmniFocus about five days before it, you know, auto renews to go in there and cancel it. It's really, it's just like anything, anything else. Like you said, you just have a system that you trust, and you say, hey, in three months, remind me to deal with this. I do think, though, that the idea of using one password for this is a good one. Like you can use um, a collection or a folder and one password and kind of pull stuff together or even I mean, there's just so many different ways to distinguish records in one password these days where you could really um, simplify the process of auditing this stuff as you're going through it the first year. Maybe create a collection, say this is a one year audit list and put a bunch of them in there. Yeah, yeah that it could be a secure note. Is it you know, something as simple as that? Yeah. Now, Bradley, when you decide that, you know, this is a, a service that I don't want to use anymore, or this is a website that I had an account at one point, but I have no interest in keeping it. 
You mentioned earlier that sometimes those accounts don't always make it easy for you to completely delete your account. Have you found any good services out there that will bulk unenroll you or, you know, what is the what is the best practice for, you know, getting your presence off of that site if if perhaps they don't have an option that just says, "Hey, delete my account." I've not found any central service, but a lot of times it comes down to just googling it, like, you know, Google how to delete Facebook, you know, or um, you know, of course, you know, the, the more reputable sites, I think they make it a little bit easier. I'll tell you, like, uh, you know, Audible, for example, I'll, I'll come on and off audible.com as my, as my needs arise and they make it super, super easy to cancel and restart. And that's how, and that's how it should be. And obviously it's in this, it's in their business to you to be a customer, but they also know part of being a great uh, service is it makes you easy to leave. Cause that makes you would want to come back in the future. But just as you know, simple as like taking a few minutes and typing it in Google. I mean, Facebook is one of the ones that's like a, a you know, kind of a headache. It's like you can deactivate your account, but you can also delete it. And so if you want to get off Facebook, just delete it. You know, but if it, you got to do a little bit of searching to find it. That's true. Now let's talk a little bit about social media, because not only do we have social media accounts, but we have other accounts that are connected to these social media accounts. Oh, yeah. As we mentioned earlier, that's the all the rage. You sign in through Facebook, you sign in through Google, you sign in through Twitter. Uh, it's just it makes an, it's an easier process, but you know, that's there's some risk involved there. What do you do about all this? Because I occasionally find that, you know, I go in and I look at my security settings in Facebook or in Twitter and I'm like, what, what is that? Where did that come from? I don't know what these things are. But yeah, I think this is the good time of year to go through and revoke anything you're not using. On, on Twitter, for example, they call it the connected app section. Go in there and just and just revoke it. Uh, that that basically takes care of it. If you don't, you know, it's like I'm trying to think of a good, good example, but um, you know, if you signed into you know, this website via Twitter, go if you're not using it anymore, just revoke it, and then they don't have access to it. And that's one of the beauties of you know the OAuth token system is they never have actually you know, they don't have your password to Twitter, but they still have access to whatever they you know asked for originally. But if you're not using it, revoke it, and then you if you decide you're going to use it later, you can go in and, and reauthorize it. All right. Sounds good. So I like your idea of using one password. I like your idea of creating tags or creating folders to, to go through and audit this. And David, I think you've got a great idea of putting things together in, in spreadsheets, because especially if you have a column in that spreadsheet that auto totals and you can say, hey, this is how much I actually spend every week, every month, every year. You'll find that that's going to add a lot. I mean, Bradley, I know you're a cord cutter. I'm a cord cutter. Uh, it's we talk about you know hey I save eighty bucks I save fifty bucks sixty bucks a, a month by not having cable, but man it makes it really easy to justify all of those extra purchases. Uh, I just for example canceled my Netflix subscription because I couldn't tell you the last time I watched something on Netflix, but it was so easy to say well you know I am saving sixty bucks a month because I don't subscribe to cable so what's another you know eight bucks a month to subscribe to Netflix and then. After that, it was one more thing of, oh, you know, what's another 90 bucks a year or 100 bucks a year now to subscribe to Amazon Prime? And, oh, well, you know, well, what about Hulu Plus? Well, that's only, you know, and, and you keep adding and adding and adding and adding. And all of a sudden, I've added back the price of my cable subscription. Yeah, you've basically, you know, cable is very convenient because it's just, it just is there. I mean, when you start adding in things like uh, um, an over-the-air antenna with like a TiVo or a Tableau-type device, like th you can add, you, know, you may be saving 80, but then you're spending 50 in return. Uh, and again, I, I throw things like Spotify and Beats in there because, sure, you know, they're nice, but they're not necessarily a necessity. And then, you know, as we look for, to this year, we have the HBO over the air coming where you can buy that a la carte. Well, if that's $20 a month, which it easily could be, Again, at some point, like it's just if you're spending all this money to replace cable, you should just get cable. 
Well, I know if I canceled Netflix, my family would lynch me. So, that's <laughs> well, maybe that, maybe that's one you should keep. But you know, <laughs> I I was looking at it, and you know, I know that there's not parity between the systems, but a lot of what I watch on Netflix is available on Amazon Prime. And I yeah. don't watch that much. So, you know, I'm going to keep Amazon Prime because I use Amazon Prime for so many more things than just streaming. So when I compare Amazon Prime and Netflix, yeah, Amazon Prime is going to get my dollars and I really don't need Netflix. So that was an easy call. Well, and I probably would cancel Netflix if it wasn't for my kids because there is so much kid stuff on there. It keeps me from buying DVDs and things like that. And But the great thing about Netflix is, you know, House of Cards Season 3 starts in February. If you want to watch that, sign up for a month and then cancel. I mean, that's there the beauty. It's no, it's no commitment. You know, just take the time to, you know, to cancel. And it's not like they delete your account and delete your entire history. They make it, like, super easy to restart. Now, one of the things, I, I'm actually not paying for Netflix right now uh, monthly because... I randomly will search for on eBay for Netflix gift cards and people mm. will somehow win these, or I guess they're given as a gift. I bought a one year gift card to Netflix for $55 and I just applied that to my account and it's eating into that every month. And I know like I thought I saw where someone like had a, some Hulu gift cards, like six months or $20. So some of this stuff, like if you're paying for it monthly, do a random search on eBay to see if you can find someone selling a gift card that they, you know, I guess if they want it or someone gave it to them and did, just didn't need it. Yeah, you know, I think you um I, I think you turned me onto that and I was able to pick up an Evernote subscription on, on eBay for like eighteen bucks and it's normally forty five a year. So that was a that was a great deal. Yeah, I've got I've done that with Evernote randomly and you know, someone you know, I, I don't know if they like I guess they must win them or something, but yeah, I've picked up a you know year here and there for fifteen bucks at you know pop. It's a it's a good deal. Yeah, great tips there. Well, either way, I think the the takeaway is go through your one password library. You know, delete accounts that are no longer active. Keep track of what you're spending money on, and you know your technology can help you. You pull that together. Yeah, because again, you know, five dollars. That's the great thing about microtransaction is, oh, it's five dollars a month. It's five dollars a month. But again, if you have five of those, that's twenty five dollars a month, and then you do twenty five times twelve. You know, and I started, that was one of the things I really struggled with Mobile Me a few years ago. Is I originally signed up for Mobile Me like maybe back in. Uh, oh, six, right when it first launched, it was a hundred dollars a year. And then I was like thinking, you know, if I had this for 10 years, I will have spent a thousand dollars on mobile me. Is that worth it to me? And that's when you start thinking like, I don't know if I want to pay literally because a lot of this stuff, like, you know, these, some of these services, if you sign up for them to keep getting value from them, you must keep paying. So if you're not really, if you love Dropbox, but you're not using, you know, if you're using five gigs of it, you probably shouldn't pay because over the next 10 years, you will pay a thousand dollars for Dropbox. Yeah, although, you know, I would I would say in response to that, that there's a lot of dumb stuff I spend money on more money than that, that is much less useful to me than things like iCloud or Dropbox. I mean, if you just look at every time you go out to eat or get a cup of coffee, how much money you spend. I mean, um, if these services have use to you, then you shouldn't be hesitant to use them. I mean, I, I don't know how I'd get by without some of these things. So yeah, and I and I think that's that's the big thing is is what we're stressing is is audit your subscriptions, but that doesn't mean necessarily cancel them. That means just be aware of what you're paying for. Th- that's All absolutely right. true. That's because I mean I was I was at the hardware store earlier and picked up a Coke for two fifty, way way paid you know, over over paid for a Coke, but I was thirsty and spent two dollars fifty cents, and you know that kind of stuff adds up as well. All right. All right, Bradley. Well, thanks for coming in and joining us and um, and and for sharing the article. We'll put a link to it in the show notes so everybody can go over and read it. And everybody go check out your subscriptions. And 
uh, thanks for joining us. Have a great day, guys. All right. Thanks, Bradley. Maybe before we continue, I'm going to do a quick uh, ad spot. And okay. I'd like I'd like to talk about LaunchBar. Uh, LaunchBar is back with the show, and it's really great having them. They've got a brand new version six out that has got some great new features. the The user interface got a complete overhaul, and it, it's just really great. They've got themes now, so you can change the color theme if you want to change the the look. And the configuration interface is much better too, so you're, it's even more configurable than ever. But what I really like about the new version is what they've done under the hood. So so LaunchBar is an application where you can use a keyboard shortcut to make magic happen on your Mac. It's like spotlight supercharged. So with me, I use control space to activate launch bar and I use it all day to run my Mac. So I hit control space and then the launch bar window comes open and I can do a variety of things. Like one of the things I do often is I get contact information. If I'm writing a letter to somebody and I want to include an email or, or a phone number, I'll hit control space and I can type Katie Floyd and Katie's name comes up and then I can just right arrow and it'll show me her phone number and I can select it and hit command C and it's saved it to the clipboard. So if you, if you're listening carefully, what I just did was all with the keyboard without lifting my hand from the keyboard, I picked her name and copied her uh, phone number to the clipboard. And now I can jump back over to my word processor, my email application, whatever, hit command V and paste it in. And that sounds, you know, nerdy, but it's really, really fast. If you start doing these, these, these keyboard shortcuts this way, and frankly, this is stuff you can't do in Spotlight, even the fancy new Spotlight in Yosemite doesn't support these kinds of tools. Um, you can make things happen on your Mac lickety split and LaunchBar makes that possible. So with a new version, they have these additional indexing rules. So not only can I get into a contact information, I can get into reminder lists, finder tags, Safari iCloud tabs, Safari tops sites. All the stuff is now available and they have actions you can perform on them. So I can I can physically tag a file all with the keyboard shortcut in LaunchBar or I can airdrop it to my phone or I can do a web search and as I do the web search it gives me live search results right in the LaunchBar window now so I can just scroll down and hit the one I want. Um, I can browse file information, get usage statistics. There's just a, a ton of great tools you can do with this stuff. And now they've even got their own script-based actions. So if you want to extend LaunchBar with custom actions written in a common scripting language, you can do that. Um, you know, even you know, firing off Apple scripts or doing whatever you want all happens from your keyboard directly. You can write your own, or you can add them from a library of user and developer submitted actions. So even if you're not a super geek and don't want to write these things yourself, once you have LaunchBar, you can tap into all those great scripts that have already been written by other people. So you can use it for free as long as you like with all the new features available. But after 30 days, they're going to give you a screen saying, hey, why don't you purchase it? And if you purchase it, the price is very reasonable. You can get a single license for $30, or you can license your whole family for $48. They also have upgrade pricing available if you want. But the, the tip for this week would be um, quickly capturing contact information. Another trick you can do with that is, like I said, in addition to hitting Command-C to copy that phone number, I could also just hit Enter, and it would put it in large type across the screen. So if I need to walk across the room to dial the phone, I've got an easy way to see the phone number. It's it's just a little trick, but I use it all the time with LaunchBar, and it's just not possible anywhere else. So everybody go check out LaunchBar, and thanks LaunchBar for all your support of the show. David, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that uh, during your ad read, I took a, or actually, uh, JF took a quick poll of the chat room. Yeah. And uh, they have decided that you are wrong. And everybody else in the chat room uses command space. 
Oh, Just they're saying. wrong. I'm sorry. They're wrong. Okay. I, well, that, that, I, that's legacy for me because I started out using Quicksilver, which was control space and such muscle memory for me now. And then, you know, you've got command I mean, spaces. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying it's, it's unanimous against you. It's unanimous. Wow. That yes. hurts. Yep. That hurts. Unanimous against you. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, yeah. So, well, and, actually, and they're claiming that you might be like an ex windows user. No, no, it's not. It's, it's all about Quicksilver because okay. Quicksilver's default, you know, back in the day, I don't know, was it 2005 or I don't know when Quicksilver first showed up, but it was control space because command space was such a thing with Spotlight. Was it Tiger? I think it was Tiger that Spotlight came out and um, they didn't want to interfere with the Spotlight keyboard. So it's just, it's under my fingers now. I cannot change it. Okay, dokie. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's, let's move along. Um, one of the topics that I put in here um, is I did actually, now that we're done with our sponsor spot, I, I did want to have a quick discussion uh, about uh, MPU sponsors, because uh, this is a topic that came up on our, on our Google groups. And if you haven't, uh, go check out the Google groups. Uh, it's it's we've got well over two thousand members there, by the way, which is just astonishing. Uh, you can find that at MacPowerUsers dot com slash Google Plus, uh, and you can get a direct link to the Google Groups. But uh, there was a, a lot of uh, honestly very good discussion on the Google Groups about uh, sponsorships on Mac Power Users and and podcasts in general, um, and you know some criticism, some constructive criticism, some some people just talking in general about sponsors and and some concerns about. Um, whether our sponsors or our shows were becoming, you know, long commercials for our sponsors or whether we were talking too much about our sponsors um, outside of the regular ad spots or whether it was the same sponsors over and over again or the ad spots were becoming long and repetitive. And, you know, since this is the feedback show, I thought this was probably a good time that we could address some of that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, our show is um... – it's a really self-produced show. We do it ourselves and we've had sponsors approaches over the years and we've, we've taken several. And I guess a good example would be one password. Like for instance, one password is not sponsoring today's show, but they are a frequent sponsor of the show. And we just spent some time talking about them with Bradley. And yeah, I guess one of the advantages of our show is that um, we're pretty picky about who we accept as sponsors. We're approached by people that we don't accept. And, and we we only pick the ones we love, so they're going to bleed over into the show. In fact, one of the issues we faced was we, as an example, we wanted to do a whole show on Text Expander for years, but you know, Smile has been they were the original sponsor of this podcast, and we always felt like we couldn't do a show on Text Expander because they're a sponsor of the show. So it would you know it obviously would seem inappropriate. But then we got thinking, you know what? <laughs> We really want to do a show on it. And so we're essentially punishing them because they sponsor the show. And we eventually did one on it. So, I mean, we hear what you're saying and we're trying not to make it sound like extended commercials. But at the same time, we're Mac Power users. We're going to talk about the products we really like. And fortunately, some of those people do sponsor the show. Yeah. And I think another example of that is is the recent PDF show. You know, we brought Ernie in in part because he does not use PDF Pen, which is one of Smile's products. He uses exclusively Adobe products. And we were concerned that, you know, we, we use exclusively PDF Pen because that's the product that we use and love. And um, so I think our, when possible, we try to bring in some other folks to talk about balance. But, you know, just to give you a little peek behind the curtain, you know, we do book most of the sponsors ourselves, you know, probably about over half of them at this point. 
um, our sponsors that we directly book or that we directly solicit. Um, so we have direct control over most of those sponsor spots and of the sponsors that are booked for us. Um, David and I always maintain veto power and editorial control. And there have been times when, when we have declined sponsorships um, before for MPU. Um, but as a result of that, because many, if not most of our sponsors are, are handpicked really from some of the products that we use and love, it, it stands to reason that many of those products are going to be mentioned in the show outside of sponsorships. And, you know, as David says, we've, we've troubled, we struggled with that. And honestly, I, I hope that uh, this feedback show um, will, will help to offer some balance because, you know, in our, in our weekly shows, it's, it's typically David and I, and sometimes a guest and, you know, we, we can bring in and we can really only talk about what we have direct experience with. And we, we try to cover the field as much as we can. And our guests offer an, an alternate viewpoint sometimes. Sometimes they share the same viewpoint we do. Um, but in this case, if you have an alternate viewpoint, if, if you have a, a topic that you want to talk about that we haven't or a product that's better, and, and we've got some of that in, in this show as well, please share it with us. Please send us in a review. Please send us in an audio comment. Um, and that's what this show is for. And, and we'd love to feature some of those as well. Yeah, and, and we are going to try. We've always tried to make our sponsorship spots kind of learning moments. We talk about tips for using the app. So even if you already own the app, hopefully you get something out of it. And we are trying to make a conscious effort about even getting better at that. So uh, bear with us. I mean, we're we're not professionals at this stuff, as it's obvious every week, <laughs> but uh, we really love it. And we really love bringing the show to you. And frankly, I really like the fact that, you know, the time I put into this, I do get some compensation for it and it's really helping my family. So, you know, we understand and appreciate what everybody's saying and, and we want to continue to make this a great show. So we, we, uh, we have no plans to make big changes, but, but we do appreciate the feedback. Yeah, I, I will say that the three things that we probably are going to try to do this year is we are going to try to be a little more mindful of the length of our ad reads. Um, we know that sometimes we have a tendency to get excited. And by and that, go, you're talking about me. No, yeah, uh, and, and go on about a product. Um, we, we are going to try to be mindful and, and provide you a tip about a product when possible so that even if you've already got this uh, particular product that you can maybe learn a little bit more on how to use it better. Um, and believe me, we would love more than anybody else to solicit a more diverse group of sponsors. Um, that's been something we've been trying to do for a while. And to the extent that you have suggestions or that you have contacts, uh, please feel free to send them in. And so... Um, I don't know about you, David, but that's really all I got to say about that. Yeah, I think that's enough. There we go. Um, I, I did kind of raise a stir on the internet this week with a post I wrote. No. Um, I, I, I quit family sharing. Yeah. And yeah. I've seen this linked several places. And I know you've got a lot of Twitter feedback. Jason Snell talked about after you quit, how he quit too. And Daisy even wrote a post on this. Did, did she? I haven't read it. Yes. You haven't read your <laughs> wife's post? Do you follow her on Twitter, David? Come on. Isn't that the joke when your wife looks at you angry and you're like, why are you mad? And she says, read my blog. Yes. Well, you should. You should read her blog. I, I Well, you know, it's funny. My family is very forgiving with me because I am, as you know, a super geeky dude and I'm always looking for something fancy. And if there's, if, if I can turn my lights on by opening an app instead of flipping a switch, you know, I'm going to at least try it. And so, uh, so they put up with me. I've got, you know, a thermostat that's hooked to the internet and I've got all these things around the house I've done over the years. And, and this is the one that I have had the most pushback on of anything we've ever tried. And honestly, they're, they're justified. So, so family sharing, just to kind of wind the clock back a little bit. Last year at WWDC, they announced family sharing. And um, family sharing is 
solves a big problem that my family's experiencing. And, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a kind of a geeky guy, like I said, and I've got these kids that are growing up on me and it's hard to believe Kitty, when we started the show, my kids were little and now they're big, you know, and one's in college and one's, you know, we've been doing this a long time. Yeah. So, you know, but the, the needs of the family have evolved before we had one family iMac that was downstairs that we could always see, but now the kids have their own computers and, you know, we've had this, um, you know, this growth of Apple devices in our house where we're running into problems with the usual, you know, method. And the usual method was you'd have one shared iTunes account for the whole family and every computer was connected to it and everybody had their phone connected to it and it generally worked. But then Apple started bringing in great services like iTunes Match, which I, I maintain it is a great service. Um, but then they've got all these DRM limits. And like one of the big deals is you can only have 10 devices connect to iTunes Match. And obviously with four people and iPads, iPhones, and Macs, and in my case, two Macs now, um, there's a problem. We have more devices than we have slots. And additional problems are, you know, the music that my daughters are buying is different than the music that I'm buying. And so, I, you know, we have kind of a messy iTunes account that's full of stuff, a lot of, of which I have no interest in. And a lot of which my kids have no interest in. So, you know, and they're growing up, I guess, is to get to the theme. You know, my college daughter at some point is going to, to my chagrin, leave and go somewhere and, you know, have her life. And she's going to need to take her iTunes account with her. So family sharing seemed like a great idea. And the way it works is each person has their own iTunes account, but they can share between accounts so long as they're all paid on the same credit card. And that was kind of the pitch they made at WWDC. And it sounded like a great idea to me because we're right at the point where that would make sense. And one of the problems that solves is because everybody has their own account. Everybody has their own 10 device limit. So we don't have any of that problem either. Um, so, so we've got, you know, I was thinking let's, let's go for this iTunes um, family sharing. But before it released, the fine print starts coming out and there are some limitations. One of them is for the apps, they, the apps developers have to support it. Um, so if an app developer says, I don't want to in be included in um, family sharing, that means that everybody would have to buy it separately. They couldn't share the one app. And and we, we've been testing this for three months. And as I told you, we've quit it. So I'm kind of giving you the benefit of hindsight here. But we didn't really have a problem with apps being limited that way. I mean, we didn't run into a problem where there were a lot of apps that people wanted that we had to buy multiple times. Um, but the in-app purchases is also not supported as a rule. So if you've got apps like, you know, a GPS app, like a Garmin app, and you've paid $100 for in-app purchase data, and your spouse or your kids want to use that same app, they're going to have to buy all that in-app purchase data again as well. Um, once again, in my family, this wasn't a big problem because we don't have any apps that we've bought massive in-app purchases, except like upgrades to the Omni apps, which I, I'm probably the only person that uses those. Uh, otherwise, in-app purchases for us are a lot, in a lot of cases, in-app purchases for us are um, like game purchases. You know, they buy something in a game and only one person plays that game. So it just doesn't matter. Um, so once again, no problem. The third gotcha built in is iTunes Match. And for me, that was kind of a problem because everybody in my family has learned now that, you know, you set up the library on your Mac, you go on your phone, you download that playlist that you made, and you're good. 
and you don't have to connect it to your computer and iTunes Match has been a real help for all of us. Well, if you go into family sharing, your family sharing does not apply to all the accounts. So I was going to have to pay for family share for iTunes Match four times if I wanted everybody in my family to be able to use it. All right. So, so 100 that, bucks versus 25. Exactly. So it went up quite a bit. But, you know, even then I was considering doing it because I felt like, well, maybe, you know, if we can have our own accounts and as the kids are getting older, that seems to be the appropriate thing to do. Maybe I just have to pay a hundred bucks. Um, but, you know, I was talking to my daughters and, and basically we signed up for one additional iTunes match account on my wife's account. And my daughters were just doing it by cable while we were figuring out if this was going to work or not. And so all that's great. And if it had just been those three limitations, we would probably still be doing it. But there was a whole bunch of problems with it that that came with it. I mean, it, it's just really not ready is my general feeling on it. Um, one of the problems was, for instance, there's some kind of bug with some apps where they won't update, like where it was originally purchased on my account. And then, for instance, my wife would download it on her new account through family sharing the app just would not update and it would give an error message when she tried to update it. So she no longer could she update all apps. She'd have to go through and selectively update them. And some of them just wouldn't update at all. And for the first time in our family's, you know, uh, history with iTunes, uh, we had an issue where playlists were just vaporizing. I mean, I spent a lot of time setting up my playlists and one day I looked in and my playlists were just all gone. And I know it wasn't somebody else in my family doing it because I was the only one accessing it. And then my my daughter and my wife, they had the same kind of problem. And so we were, you know, all of a sudden we're like got all this hassle and getting, you know, getting the music transferred between the accounts isn't as seamless as they said it was or implied it was. If you bought the music from iTunes directly, it'll transfer over. But it's not necessarily the case if it's in your library, but not purchased through iTunes. We had a lot of stuff that we couldn't find that way. So I ended up, um, boy, I'm talking a lot, aren't I? But uh, what I ended up doing is I, I, I had the entire music library and I put it on a portable drive and we were going around to each computer in the house and, you know, re-uploading the parts of that library that they wanted on their individual Macs. But then that created a whole new problem with storage limits and, you know, backup. And, uh, you know, it just, it just became such a headache. And my family was so unhappy with it because they just, somebody would buy a song and they just couldn't get it to transfer over that I just said, okay, I quit. So I quit um, family sharing this week. We're all back on one account. We had a long dinner talk about which 10 devices make the cut. <laughs> it was like um, it was like trade negotiations, honestly. I didn't realize what, how good of negotiators my kids were until we got into that discussion. Well, there are four of you and you get 10 devices. So you each get two and then somebody else, then you got two more. Yeah. And I don't think you want to hear the whole no, no, dirty but okay. detail, but basically iPads are pretty much out of the loop at this point. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well. But, and since I posted this, I've heard back from a lot of people, I, I guess I touched a nerve because I've heard back from a lot of people, uh, both, uh, you know, kind of blogger friends of ours who have posted that they've quit as well. Jason Snell is one of those. Um, but I also heard back just from a lot of people who read the blog um, who were equally unhappy. A few people who think I made a mistake and said that they're running it and it's working just fine. Um, I will say that in those cases, most of those people who have written back saying that they love it and it's fine are cases where there's only two people doing the family sharing. Um, I haven't heard from anybody that's running it with a family that is happy with it. 
Well, it seems that there are a couple of issues that you, you a couple of different classes of issues that you had with with family sharing. One was just bugs. I mean, and and hopefully that is something that will get better. But I mean, clearly apps not updating. That should not be happening. I mean, that's something that needs yeah. to get fixed. And you know, when your wife looks at you and just gives you that look and says hands you her phone because we don't even talk about it at this point because it's like a known thing she just hands me her phone because she's just had it you know it's like okay buddy you brought this on me now you figure it out right i mean so on on one hand apple has got to get the bug straightened out and and you would think here we are more than eh, not quite six months but we're several months into to ios 8 and family sharing now it's 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 time we got to get this fixed but then it sounds like but so bugs were a big part of this, but then part of it was also just kind of the way that family sharing worked. And I, if Apple could get the bugs problem solved, I, I wonder if your your family sharing experience perhaps would have been better if family sharing was all that you knew. You know, if if you were an, just starting a family, and if you were, you know, if if we if we backed up fifteen years, and and you had family sharing from the start, whether it would have been a different experience. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, I can't go back to it until they really, really have it sorted out. Because if I try and drag them back in and we still face problems, um, I will hear about it. Right. Because I think one of your problems may have been, and maybe not, is, you know, not only were you dealing with family sharing, but you were also dealing that that you had this, didn't, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you have this third family account that wasn't anybody's account that was where you bought all your stuff or your, uh, rather this fifth family account? Yeah. So you had David and Daisy and then you had your two kids and then you had this fifth Sparks family account. Well, and that would be the case for most people listening that have a family. So, you know, we have we have an iTunes account, which was the original iTunes account I had years ago, you know, probably 2003 or something. And the um, and then, you know, when I, when mobile me showed up or iCloud shows up, you get an, a separate identity and, and iOS makes accommodation for this. You can have a separate account that you use for your purchases and your music versus the account you use for your iCloud, like your calendar data and your email. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, my whole family at this point is using that old account for purchases and then their individual iCloud accounts for everything else. When you're, when you're setting up family sharing, if you want to go down that route, this is the trick you, you, you as the founder of it, keep that same setup. You still use the old iTunes account for your iTunes purchases and everything. And you still use your separate iCloud account for your iCloud stuff. But each member of your family uses their individual iCloud account for everything. So my wife would not be connected to the old account for that part. She would have uh, her iCloud account, both for purchases and iCloud services. And that's how you have it into separate accounts. Interesting. So did you yeah. lose did you lose anything as a result of this experiment for the I, couple of months that you were buying things through family sharing? Uh, Are those uh, things lost now? No, I don't think so. So we um and I haven't confirmed everything yet, but we were buying very little because we knew when when we did this, I said it was a test and we're gonna just see how it works. So um what we did is when we bought stuff, we, we bought a few test tracks on the individual accounts to see how it worked. And we were able to export those and then reimport those to my account. I don't know if that's entirely legal. I hope they don't come after me for that, but whatever. And, um, and in terms of like media purchases, we've been buying like movies and things on, on the old account in the meantime, because it's been clear since the beginning that people are not happy with it. And, um, you know, so I, 
I, I had a feeling we may not survive the, you know, the test period of family sharing. But either way, I guess my takeaway for the listeners is if you haven't tried it yet and you're thinking about it, give it another six months. Let's just see what happens. Yeah. All right. Well, we have got a ton of feedback from uh, Mac Power users listeners in the last month since we did this last show. And I want to get to that. Uh, but before we do, I want to take a quick break and talk about our next sponsor for this episode. Uh, and that is our pals over at the Omni Group. And I want to talk about OmniFocus because, you know, new year, new time to really buckle down and get a handle on all of the things that you've got to do. And David and I believe that there is no better tool to do that than OmniFocus. And with OmniFocus version 2, it is really easier than ever to use. Um, OmniFocus 2 is even cheaper than ever to use. Um, but OmniFocus is our task management tool of choice because you can throw anything that you need at it. You can use it as a simple task manager. You can use it to organize everything that you've got to do, uh, whether in your personal life, whether in your professional life, uh, whether you've got to manage all of your hobbies. Uh, it can take everything from every different area of your life. You can sort them. You can organize them. You can put them into different areas of responsibility, uh, and you can uh, give them context. You can follow the GTD methodology if that's what you want to do, or if not, uh, and OmniFocus is going to be there to, for you and sync all of your data across all of your various devices. Um, and, you know, OmniFocus knows that, you know, sometimes it's hard to get, you know, started with OmniFocus and, you know, sometimes uh, OmniFocus can be a little overwhelming, but OmniFocus version two really makes it easier than ever to get started. Um, the Omni Group provides some great resources on their website um, for getting started with OmniFocus. Um, and, you know, this guy, Max Sparky, just did this massive uh, screencasting collection for his latest field guide on how to get started with OmniFocus. Uh, if you've ever been interested in learning OmniFocus, now is a great time to start. Uh, one of my favorite features in OmniFocus version 2 uh, is this new forecast view. So once you get started with OmniFocus and you throw a couple of tasks in there and you've got your dates set for when you've deferred tasks to because you're not quite ready to start them yet or when you've got certain tasks that are due, you can now go see a forecast of your week to decide when you are going to need to do something. So if you're sitting here on Sunday and you want to know, well, what is your what does your week look like? You know, open up the forecast view and you'll see, well, I've got, you know, three tasks deferred until Monday, but I've got nothing on Tuesday and uh, man, I've got seven tasks that I've got to get done on Wednesday. And maybe you can go in and start tweaking your week and it integrates with your calendar so you can see exactly how those tasks line up to the different events that you have on your calendar and get an easy at a glance view on, on what your week's going to look like and maybe where you need to make some adjustments. Um, so go ahead and check out OmniFocus. If you want to get started, but you're not quite sure if you want to commit, there is a free demo on their website. You can download it and you can use it uh, without any risk or obligation. You can go download that over at theomnigroup.com. Uh, try it before you buy it. Uh, OmniFocus 2 starts at just $39.99. And if you decide that you need a pro license, you can get that for $79.99. Uh, and that's a big discount. That's a, the same price as the original OmniFocus 1. So again, it's never been easier to get started. Uh, and if you're looking for support, uh, go check out some of their uh, short support videos on the OmniFocus website or check out their new website at inside.omnifocus.com that will give you some helpful information on workflows and system tools and ideas with how to get started with OmniFocus. And, you know, don't forget, there's a great field guide available. So go find more information about OmniFocus at omnigroup.com. Uh, and thanks to the folks at OmniGroup for support of Mac Power users. We got some good feedback on the PDF show. And um, um, Bill wrote in talking about um, Adobe Acrobat Pro. And one of the features he talked about that I had forgot about is uh, when you OCR in Adobe Acrobat Pro, 
it deskews each page automatically when doing the OCR. So it straightens the page. If, if the pages are a little, you know, crooked through a bad scan, um, it will it will deskew and then OCR, which I think sounds silly, but it actually is really helpful to have yeah, the application do that for you. Um, and uh, another point he made is he thinks it does a, a really good job compressing files. And uh, I hadn't really tested compression. We didn't talk about that, but PDFs can get really large. Uh, so if compression is an issue, that may be a reason to take a good look at the Adobe product. Yeah. And then we had Jonathan write in. Uh, and I actually was not aware of this. You know, we use Google Docs for uh, creating our show notes and sharing information for Mac Power users, but I have not been a huge user of Google Drive. And that's where you can share documents in a in Google Drive, you know, similar to how you share within Dropbox. Uh, but Google Drive has a feature where it will OCR documents that you place into Google Drive. So it will let you um, convert images that have text in them. Uh, and to make those OCR readable. And so you can do that within Google Drive. Uh, and there, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, to some information about optical character recognition in Google Drive. I was not even aware that that was available. Yeah, you know, I was aware of that. I put that in, the, I think, the recent edition of the paperless book. I had mentioned that you can do that. Um, it's, um, you know, I, I'm still mixed about, you know, giving Google stuff like that to read, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and I, I think I'm not really being rational. I'm I'm pretty sure that there's nothing dubious going on, but it, it does make me a little uncomfortable, I guess, because the, the type of stuff that I OCR, a lot of it is is related to things that I can't share that way. So maybe I'm just overly sensitive about it. Um, uh, Dominico wrote and others wrote about uh, the mail to PDF issue. And I had talked about, you know, how you can't convert an email directly to a PDF from the mail app and, and it should be able to do so on iOS, you know? Yeah. And cause, I think cause that, we've that, had, we've had print a PDF since the beginning of OS 10. Yeah. And, and it seems like the, especially with the new world of extensions where you can make a PDF share extension or just there's apps that make it, or you can do it in workflow. There's a whole lot of ways you can make them, but there's no button in the mail application that says, you know, open up the extension menu for this email. And we had talked about it in the email show a few weeks back or months back, but I didn't mention it in the PDF show. But there's an app called Dispatch, which is a, a great e alternative email application for iOS. And it's iPhone only at this point, but they do have a, a function that allows you to share share an email out to PDF directly. So that's a really, that, that may be the single fee reason to buy the app, but it, there's a lot of other great reasons. Dispatch does so many nice things. Like one of the tricks of Disp Dispatch that I love is when you hit reply to an email, it'll say, dear Katie, it'll put, it'll pull your name out of the source and write that at the top. And when I'm, you know, getting through the, the feedback um, backlog, that's really helpful to me. Yeah. Um, a couple of other points I'll add is that uh, creating a PDF is now also an easy action in workflow. So if you've installed that workflow app, you can do that. I know we said we were going to do a workflow show in January. That's probably just FYI going to get pushed till February. There's a We've been given a heads up that there's a pretty big update to workflow coming. And so we put that show on the back burner waiting for the workflow update. But please do continue to send in your uh your workflows for us. And, and we'll talk about those as soon as that update is released. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not that far pushback. I mean, it, the yeah, one, it's just a one update is going to be soon. So we're going to, I have a lot to say about that app. Anyway. Yeah. Um, the other uh, option is a PDF converter. And I never know if you say this readle or Riattle. 
um, it, the developers. But uh, that was an app that for a long time was only available on, on iPhone, or excuse me, on iPad, and I never quite understood why. Uh, but now it's available um, on, uh, it's now a uh, universal app. So if you've already bought that app, just uh, go download it for your iPhone as well. And if you haven't, now's a great time to, to take a look at it. But that will convert documents to PDF as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, we had some some general follow-up as well. Yeah. We heard, we heard from Carlos. Oh, and this is this is the topic that will you know we 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 have never done a good job of of covering on Mac Power users because I'm not sure there is really a, a a great solution. But you know we we've talked extensively about wanting to to find a better solution to managing finances, and um, I, I think it was Skip who talked a little bit about it um, in in the NASA workflow show that we did, uh, and and Carlos wanted to chime in with a with a possible alternative as well. Hey, Katie and David. This is in response to episode 228 with Skip Owens. There was talk about Mac and iOS budgeting software, and I wanted to share what I use. Currently, I am using You Need a Budget for iOS and OS X, or YNAB for short. In a nutshell, YNAB is budgeting software that's more about a four-step methodology than the software itself. The methodology consists of giving every dollar a job, saving for a rainy day, rolling with the punches that life can throw at you, and ultimately living on last month's income. However, the software does have some pretty amazing features. Things like unified account view, powerful reporting tools, and scheduled transactions, just to name a few. But besides the methodology and the features, one of the best things that YNAB is the support. They host free online classes and even have great documentation just to get you going. My workflow is something like this. I budget on my Mac or iPad every time my wife and I get paid and I also use the envelope system just as Skip mentioned on the past episode. I give every dollar a job and have specific categories for my zero-based budget. Then every time I buy something, I look at YNAB versus my bank accounts, and I can see my remaining balances in each category I budgeted for. Before I ledger, then I look at my iPhone and add the new expense. YNAB also allows for adjustments if you overspend in a category, and can provide detailed reports on Mac clients. Then, once we get paid again, we cross-reference our bank accounts with YNAB, and we check to see how well or how not so well we did the last time around. And then the cycle continues. So for me, YNAB provides a simple yet effective methodology that allows my wife and I to stay on top of our finances without stressing out about it, because it can be very stressful at times. I think it's definitely worth checking out if you're in the market for budgeting software, and I recommend you take advantage of their trial and student options before you take the $60 plunge. Anyway, hope this is helpful for some of the listeners out there, and thanks for the work you two do. Happy holidays. You know, this is one I'm going to have to seriously look at. I've I've been using Quicken Essentials, and I, I don't want to say that I've been thrilled with it, but it's kind of been one of those, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, because um, it's been working reasonably well for me. But um, I, uh, I first... I, I like YNAB because it, it kind of works with the envelope system. And um, I know that the envelope system isn't new to anybody. You know, it's it's not a concept that was invented by anybody. But, um, you know, I've I've kind of followed the Dave Ramsey principle of things. And, and he's a big proponent of the of the envelope system, you know, giving every dollar a name, doing a budget every month. And it seems like YNAB really falls in with that. And so that may be something worth looking at. Yeah. And um, another good I guess another solution is iBank. And years ago, I met the iBank developer at Macworld, really nice guy. And I, I used his app for several years, but I've kind of fallen off the wagon. Um, but 
you know, I, you know, we, we really haven't done a good show on this because I don't think either one of us are really that excited about that much out there. And I'm not sure there is a whole show in it. So maybe these feedback shows, this will be kind of a running thing. All right. Sounds good. Um, we, we also heard from, let's see, Rob about slow feeds and back in episode, I think it was 227. I talked about how, although I tend to do most of my RSS reading on my iPad, I use Mr. Reader for that. I, I do keep Reader um, with the, the Reader app on my iPhone, and I use that sometimes for reading, but more so for subscribing to RSS feeds, because I'll come across something when I'm reading Twitter, reading my iPhone, and it's it's nice to have an app on my phone to subscribe to RSS feeds, but it's still not as easy as I would like it to be. And Rob points out that Slow Feeds is an app which provides a Safari extension that will easily allow you to subscribe to an RSS feed using extensions. Uh, and I think that's a great idea. In fact, I already own Slow Feeds. I purchased it at some point and I just I didn't end up using it. And so uh, it's available in my iCloud account just to go ahead and re-download. But apparently it's been updated and now it has an extension uh, that can be used with iOS 8 built into Safari that will allow you to subscribe to feeds on your iPhone. And I think that's a great idea. Um, and that definitely got loaded back into my utilities folder just because of the extension aspect. You know, I I am I am really enjoying the extensions and the way this is all developing. Like Hue, now Hue Lightbulbs has a great extension. Um, or I'm sorry, that's a, actually a notification center widget. But I mean... I'll, all of these great little additions we're getting to iOS it has really improved the experience for me. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then I was also, we, we talked in the last show about, you know, when do you really need a Mac be acting as a server and when can something like a NAS act like a server? Um, and, and this is kind of an example, David, where uh, you and I had talked about Drobo, who happens to be a sponsor of our show, because that's what we have direct experience with. Um, but Todd sent in an audio comment about Synology, who is also another great manufacturer of NAS devices, um, and pointed out the Synology can do and solve a problem that I had and something that I wasn't aware that it would do. So uh, let's listen to Todd, and, and hopefully my audio is going to work here. Hi, Dave and Katie, Katie and Dave. Um, this is Todd from Rockland, California, just listening to your feedback show. Um, and uh, it seems worth mentioning to Katie that Synology, at least, has an iTunes media server as one of their apps so that you can set up their shared folders for videos and photos and, uh, and, and music and then just start this iTunes media server and it will allow you to use those, uh, those folders for and it'll show up as a shared, shared media system on an Apple TV or iOS or whatever. It also has the advantage of allowing you to do other things with those same folders, like, um, well, like you can you you can use it for the Synology's own video apps at the same time. I rather like that it's taking the same data and sort of dishing it out to me in multiple different formats. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the show. Bye. All right. Now, I personally have not had any hands-on experience with that, but if if that's true, if I can throw if I can throw media files, and I, I guess they would have to be undrm media files, uh, into my Synology and then have it serve as an iTunes server, I wonder if they could be iTunes DRM'd then, and then have those play to my Apple TV, uh, I mean, that would be huge. That would that would eliminate like 90% of the need for my Mac Mini here. 
Yeah. And I'd be interested in performance as well. That's, you know, whenever you start putting that stuff on a server or on a, you know, Wi-Fi connection, I worry a little bit about that. But I guess that problem's going away as the networks get faster. Yeah, but if you think about it, that's what I'm doing right now. I mean, my yeah. my iTunes folder is on my Drobo, which yeah, is direct true. connected to my wireless network. The only reason that I have that Mac Mini is just because it's running an instance of iTunes that's yeah. referring to that folder. Well, it sounds like um, that may be a solution. Um, we also heard uh, from John. And we were talking about in the Looking Forward, Looking Back show about things that we're looking forward to in the next year. I know Katie's thinking about that new 12-inch um, theoretical Retina iPad, Mac, I'm sorry, MacBook Air. Uh, we talked about the Apple Watch, but we didn't talk about the iPad Pro rumor, which is something I can't believe we missed, <laughs> frankly. Um, but, you know, the, the, there's, a, there's a rumor out there that there's something like a 12 or 13-inch iPad out there that may have split screen and it's been talked about with some authority for a while that, you know, it's in the, it's in the manufacturing chain and things are happening. I don't know if they'll release it or not. I'm not even sure where it all fits. Uh, John says, you know, he thought he has a ton of uses for it. Uh, uh, and, and even in my life, the reason I use an iPad air, the big one is because I use it to read PDFs all day. And if they were a little bit bigger, that would make it even easier to read, I guess. But um, that is something that may happen in 2015. And, and we should have talked about it in that episode. Uh, and then we also got a comment from Dave about some, some tips if you happen to be the family tech guy. And uh, so um, that was an episode that is just to be released. So those of you in the chat room haven't heard it yet, but uh, everyone else should have heard it by now. So Good tips either way, so let's hear from Dave. Hi, David and Katie. My name is Dave from Appleton, Wisconsin, and I wanted to respond to your tweet about being the family tech guy. Uh, I am the IT person for all of our family computers, and I get all the calls at all the random times of day and night about things not working quite right. Probably the top thing that I've done recently in the last couple of years to save my sanity has been transferring people, getting them off of Windows and into the Mac world. That has made a humongous difference in the number of times I get the call about something weird happening. Uh, but a more useful tip is probably more along the lines of uh, with everybody, I, I probably support three or four different computers at three or four different locations. And one of the things I've noted, you know, every setup is a little different. There's IP addresses, there's passwords, there's different routers, there's different wireless settings and encryption and all that jazz. Uh, I keep a running log in a text file about what everyone's computer setup is. So when I get that random call from my mother-in-law that she can't log into Facebook or can't get on the internet anymore, I can kind of do some troubleshooting right off the bat instead of having to uh, first try to dig for all that uh, account and password type information. Hope that helps a little bit. Hope that helps somebody. And thank you for the show. I love what you guys do. Appreciate it. Yeah, we touched on this a little bit on the show, but I, you know, I, I didn't think we we talked as much as we probably could have about the amount of information that you can you can keep and uh, about helping keep that information. And I, I would probably take it one step further. I, I may not just keep it in a text file, but I think that's a great use for a secure note in one password. I would probably secure that stuff to some extent, just especially if you're going to be keeping um, confidential information like usernames and passwords or login information. I, I probably wouldn't want that just in a running text file, but keeping that information to help you log into your family's uh, computers and being able to provide them with support is, is definitely a good thing. 
I think one of the funny things for me is like, you know, we just got over the holidays and my family, not only do they, are they not bothered by the fact that I have all their usernames and passwords, they rely upon it, you know? (laughs) So I'll get a call from my sister saying, what is my Facebook password? (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to be in that business. Yeah, but you know, it's okay though, because at least I know they have good passwords because, you know, I'm, I'm there, you know, helping them out. Um, But, but yeah, I, I, I bet there's a lot of people listening to this show that are the family tech person. Um, uh, let's talk about our next sponsor, though. Um, you've heard us talk about Squarespace before, but we have some some pretty big news. They just came out with this new version, Squarespace 7, and everything is easier to use. Uh, you know, Squarespace has always been, you know, uh, very easy to use and operate and customize, even for someone who's not a web guy like me. And and it just got better. It's still got all that power that they've always had, but it's even easier to go in and modify and add new posts. Squarespace 7 refines all the powerful features from Squarespace 6 into one seamless unified experience. They've uncluttered the workspace, simplified the whole website making process by letting you add content and customize your design in one window, which is really the magic of this thing. It's all in one window, so it's very easy to go and make adjustments and changes and not get lost in the process. Uh, You're going to spend even less time building your site and more time doing what you love. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code MPU. And we do love hearing from our listeners. So if you've got uh, an interesting Squarespace story, let us know. And I've got one for you this week. Um, We heard from listener Randall and uh, his son uh, is working for a landscape company. You know, he got out of college. He went and got his first job. And uh, in a few short weeks, he went from, you know, planning and digging to building the company's website. And then he called his dad and said, hey, what am I going to do about this? I'm not really a website person. And Randall, being a loyal Mac Power Users listener, said, Go to Squarespace. And he did. He went to Squarespace. His son has set up and now he's the rock star at his at his at his at his new job because he set up this amazing website at monumentaloutdoor.com. And he did it all using Squarespace. It's just not that hard. So if you've been thinking about making your own website, go over to squarespace.com, enter the uh, offer code MPU, get in there and and just get to work. I, I love it. I use it for maxsparky.com. I know Katie uses it as well for katiefloyd.me. And, um, and thank you, Squarespace, for all the support. So, you know, one of my favorite parts about this feedback show is we get a lot of tips from Mac Power users, listeners, um, just things that they're doing and ways that they've enhanced their workflow. Uh, and we got a great one from Rodrigo about, you know, we talked in our, our email episode about how some people can be hunters and some people can be gatherers. Uh, and he's got some tips for how you can incorporate both in using email. So let's take a listen. Hi, Katie and David. I'm Rodrigo from Brazil. And I'd like to share some thoughts on the hunter-gatherer approach to emails. I'm a hunter, but I found that hunting is easier if you do not overlook the gatherer side entirely. In my daily job, I deal with reports of over 600 eucalyptus plantations across my state. The people who send me these reports do their jobs very professionally, but have issues with spelling things incorrectly due to their education have been cut short by family needs at early age, or they have so much work that they just misspell things out of sheer exhaustion. After three years having issues searching their emails in emergency situations, at the turn of the year I created a label for every one of those forests, like this. Step 1. I passed a list of plantations with their ID number and name from Excel to Brevi, our text expander clone for Windows. Step 2. 
when I get an email regarding one of those plantations, I create a Gmail label filling its name with the Brevia abbreviation I made for it. And step 3, whenever I need information regarding a plantation, the Gmail label operator is quite smart at auto-filling its name. It also helps to deal with multiple report emails when your boss or someone else sends an email regarding five or more of those plantations. Gmail is bad at searching the email body because it includes the results found inside an attachment. Since all of our reports come as an Excel sheet and all of them have a list of all the plantations, if I'm trying to find on the body of an email a single plantation, let's say Aurora, it will find every single attachment with Aurora in it which in my case is over 5,000 emails at the moment. That just won't cut it in a time of crisis. Using multiple labels in those multiple report emails saves me a ton of time searching. Well, thanks, Rodrigo. That was a good tip. The, um, I was thinking about, as he was talking about it, could he use a filter to auto-apply the label rather than having to use the briefy shortcut? That's a good idea. Maybe. Yeah, and, and I guess it would depend. Like if they, if they always come from the same people then maybe you could do it based on the recipient. Like if you have the same person reporting, I don't know. Let us know, Rodrigo. Yeah, it sounds that, like maybe he does it within the Gmail web app, though. Yeah, exactly. But Gmail does have some pretty impressive online filtering tools. Um, and I have to admit also that when I hear someone in Brazil is listening to our show, it, it just makes me smile because I, you forget how how wide the audience is for the show. And it really is delightful when you when you get reminded uh we heard from tim about a text expander to paste clipboard and he said he made a, a simple snippet it just pastes the content of the clipboard and he says it can be useful on ios when pasting by normal means holding down your finger in the text field for a second and select paste so rather than having to do that process where you hold down and press paste you just would do the snippet would be maybe XCL for X clip or whatever. And it would, it would paste the contents of the clipboard. Another trick of that, that people don't realize is it's a really great way to paste plain text. If you just set up a simple text expander snippet, uh, plain text paste clipboard. And that way, if you grab something off somewhere on the internet and it's got a bunch of weird formatting embedded in it, and you run it through the snippet rather than command V or pasting it, it strips all the formatting out, which is, can be quite useful. I use that paste as plain text all the time. And yeah. uh, my shortcut for that is just PT semicolon. There and, you go. And sometimes I use that instead of command V all the time. And I'm like, oh, I, did, I didn't mean to do that. I just meant to, whatever. But yeah. Yeah. Muscle memory. Muscle memory. Um, in a couple episodes, I talked about um, Authy being a Google Authenticator app. And one of the reasons that I used it uh, is because it allows you to sync your Google Authenticator codes uh, among multiple devices. And the reason that I did that is because if I ended up having to erase my iOS device, um, resetting up all those Google Authenticator codes and turning off two-factor authentication, turning them back on and resetting the QR codes can sometimes be a pain. But as long as I had one device that was still on and synced, I could just, you know, re-download Authy and, and sync them back up again. Um, and Michael actually posted to our Google Plus group with a tip and said that, I heard you mention the challenges of using Google Authenticator on multiple devices. He said, here's a tip. When you're viewing the QR code, and this is when you go to set up your Google Authenticator app in general, uh, you can select to show the key 
which is represented, which is a string that is represented by the QR code. You can save the string into your favorite password manager. And when you need to set up a new device, select manual and then enter or copy and paste the code uh, from your password manager or wherever it is stored. Uh, I needed to do this recently when my iPhone decided to die and needed to be replaced. He said you could also take, uh, and this came from the comments, which is why the Google Plus group is so great. The comments said, you know, alternatively, as opposed to saving the key, you could also take a photo or a screenshot of that QR code and save it as an attachment in your favorite password manager. Just make sure you save it securely um, as a way to set up those Google Authenticator codes in the future. And that's a great idea. Yeah, the ability to save a screenshot to 1Password or something like that. don't forget about that because there are lots of uses for it. Um, uh, we also heard, uh, we had an audio comment from Amit. Yeah, we did about uh, using window files with your Mac. So let me get there. Hi, Katie and David. This is Amit from London and I absolutely love your show. I've got a tip for users with a multitude of hard drives lying around the house. If you've ever bought a hard drive from anywhere other than the Apple store, or if you're coming from the Windows world, firstly, welcome over. And when you plug in the hard drive, you may find that you can actually read files but not write anything to it from your Mac. The reason is because this is formatted with Windows NTFS, which the Mac doesn't natively support. I've been using an app to fix this for quite a number of years. That app is Tuxera. It comes with a free 15-day trial which translates into a simple £20 purchase. This simple app, which you'll see in the system preferences as opposed to the applications folder, just runs in the background. It allows you to write to any of your old hard disks, and by write, I also mean things like create folders, move files, and even delete files. These are all critical tasks for making sure your data is up to date. I hope this helps someone. Thanks very much for your time, and keep up the great work. Yeah, I I think that would be most useful if you've got those drives and they need to continue to work with PCs and Macs. If it's a if you've if you switched over and you've just got a bunch of NTFS drives, my recommendation would be copy the data onto you know whatever your backup system is, and then reformat them uh, to you know a Mac friendly format. Um, and the other thing that that I'll point out is I don't think this is so much the case anymore. But it used to be that you could walk into a, a big box retailer and and I'm just using examples here. Um, this will probably be incorrect, but you know you could walk in and you could buy let's say a, a two terabyte hard drive for a quote unquote PC for let's say eighty nine dollars, or you could buy a two terabyte hard drive for Mac for one hundred and twenty dollars. Um, and the reality is that the, the hard drives and the mechanisms themselves are identical. The only thing you're paying for is the the Mac drive has been formatted uh, for Mac, and the PC drive has just been formatted for Windows. When really all you have to do is take that drive, bring it home, pop it in, run Disk Utility, and it takes 30 seconds to reformat it, and you've you know just saved yourself you know 30 bucks or I forget what my example is, but but whatever. So I, I don't think you're seeing that very much these days. Um, you know most people I think know that you can reformat those hard drives and should reformat those hard drives, especially if you get a blank one. Um, but this is a, a great way when you're um, if you have to keep those drives cross-platform for some ways. Yeah, I haven't seen that for some years now, but I'm sure there are people doing it still. Yeah. Um, Tomas wrote in and said something that, honestly, I did not know until I dug into it. But he said, hey, just a quick tip. If you need to send a file to somebody, um, you can just drag and drop or copy and paste a file into iMessage, and it will share that file with them via iMessages. And I don't know how I missed that, but I did not know that. 
I, you know, I just don't use iMessages that much. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Um, the, um, Kim, uh, wrote in about notability and questions about the Evernote. So, uh, Kim is a college professor and, uh, said all of the, all of the students, uh, submit their work as PDFs. So they store the files in Dropbox and quickly access them uh, in Notability from the iPad, uh, where it uses a stylus to edit and grade the work and then sync the graded PDF back to Dropbox. Um, uh, from my Mac, I use a keyboard maestro to email the files to all my students. With a stylus in my iPad, I can grade hundreds of term papers from anywhere. Yay, that was a good tip. So, um, you know, Notability is one of those apps on the iPad that just, it's always kind of up at the top list. And the reason why is it's just such a Swiss army knife of note taking. In addition to being able to annotate with handwritten notes, you can type on it, uh, you can record and it indexes the recording to the notes. Um, I use it all the time and it's probably still my favorite note taking application, but I'd never thought about it in the context of PDF annotation. So I thought that was smart. Um, and and there was a second note from Kim. You want to talk about that one? Yes, but I'm going to uh, throw some of this to you as well. She says, Katie, okay. Katie has discussed in the past her Evernote Jot stylus in passing, but I'd be interested in a full review. Uh, reviews online are tempted at best, and that's a hefty price for a tool that isn't an improvement over my Wacom Solo. Uh, Wacom? Wacom? I like Wacom because it's like Wacom. Yeah, me but, too. But I don't know that that's correct. Um, I don't care. I just like it. <laughs> Let's whack them. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So we've been talking about this, uh, the Evernote Jot Stylus. I have one, and, and David, I believe you have one now, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I have mixed thoughts on it, and I don't really know what what to say other than, yeah, the reviews are going to be mixed on it. I have tried a number of styli, and um, I'm saying that with a question mark because I think that's correct, styli. And of all of them that I've tried, I think the Evernote Jot Stylus is probably the best. That being said, um, and I say it's the best for these reasons. I think it feels the most like uh, using a pen. I think it's the it has the finest point. I think it has the best precision. It feels the best to use in my hand. Um, and I think it produces the best result when I'm trying to take notes on an iPad or when I'm trying to highlight something or, or make annotations. So overall, I, I feel like I'm happy with the Evernote stylus compared to the other ones that I've used. Um, that being said, I'm not happy because although it's the best that I've used compared to others, it, it doesn't fulfill the dream for me, which is being able to pick up my iPad and being able to pick a stylus and, and use it like a, a piece of paper. And I don't know that we'll ever be there, or at least maybe we're 10 or 15 years away from that. Um, I, the Evernote stylus gets closest of all, but there's still a lot of frustrations. Um, there are frustrations in that sometimes the Bluetooth drops out, you know, sometimes the battery runs out on me at inopportune times. Sometimes it misses a signal and it stutters. Um, and But it's just, it's not as precise as I would like it to be. And it still looks like I'm a fifth grader writing with a crown as opposed to, you know, writing, you know, with a $70 tablet or stylus on a, you know, $500 plus tablet. But, you know, that's, that's kind of what all of these look like on, on tablets and styluses for me. Um, but I do use it and I enjoy it for, um, you know, highlighting and annotating and things like that. It's just, it's, it's not a note taking device for me, but well, nothing just, is. It's it, I, I don't blame the stylus for that. It's just, I think the technology behind the iPad 
And even just the process of writing on a piece of glass, as opposed to writing on a piece of paper, is very different. So I don't know if you're ever going to get that exactly the way you want it. There are third-party products out there um, that allow you to write on an actual piece of paper, and it digitizes it automatically through a variety of means. Um, And, you know, there's things you can do for that, Katie, if you want digital notes, but writing them on your iPad, I don't think really works really that well now. The, um, to answer the question from Kim, I would not replace whatever you're using now. It's, it's a nice stylus, but it's not, it's not an earth shattering one. You don't need to drop what you're using. The only reason I got one is because I destroyed my old one. Um, uh, so if I hadn't, I'd still be using the old one, which was a jot touch, you know, the little plastic disc on the end. So uh, how do you how do any... you compare to the Jot Touch? Uh, I like it better. Um, the The plastic disc was kind of noisy, and I don't know, it just was odd writing with that disc. But I, I like it better. But I don't like it so much better that I would get rid of one to replace it. And my use of a stylus is largely like ninety percent of what I do with a stylus on an iPad is annotate PDFs, and I don't annotate. I don't write notes on them because, like you said, it looks like a crayon, no matter what stylus use but like just to circle a word or to you know put a block around something i use it in that method if i'm going to add text or a note to a pdf i do it i open up a note and i type in the text box so i guess kind of mixed reviews from both david and i it's probably better than anything else we've used but it's you know it's it's not the dream that we want but i don't think anything is yeah and and i think that's a hardware issue and and, you know the ipad like we just said earlier is going to get bigger theoretically at least, or hypothetically, and it's going to get better. And, you know, maybe one day that will get better. But so long as I'm writing with a pen on a piece of glass, I don't think I'm ever going to be entirely satisfied with that experience. Yeah. So we have got quite a few more questions still left in the queue. And I think actually some we're going to have to hold over for next month. Uh, But before we move on, I do want to take a moment and thank our last sponsor for this episode. uh, And that is the fine folks over at Fujitsu. And they have got the excellent ScanSnap line of scanners. And, you know, David, I caused a little bit of an unintentional ruckus over at the Floyd household this Christmas when I picked up an IX500 for my mother. And, you know, my mom's been using an S1300i for quite some time, and that's a great scanner. It's the midline scanner, and I would probably say that it's probably the great starter scanner for most people who are interested in getting into document scanning. It's portable, it can be USB-powered, and it will scan uh, duplex, which means both sides of the page at the same time, up to 12 pages per minute, Um, and it's got a document feeder that can can hold quite a few pages. But my mom was getting into doing some really serious scanning and she was really going at it. And when we went to Macworld last year, the IX500 had just come out and she had seen it and decided that she needed one. Uh, And so I'd been thinking about this since March and decided to pick up an IX500 for her for a couple of reasons. One is that the IX500 is wireless and putting the scanner in the closet and being able to use it wirelessly would be nice. With the IX500, you can scan wirelessly both to your Mac or directly to an iOS device. Um, The iX500 also has a 50-sheet feeder, which means if you're going to start scanning in bulk and you're trying to really get through some file cabinets, the iX500 is going to tear through that. It's really, really fast. Uh, It will scan up to 25 pages per minute. It's got the paper feeding system of some professional-grade scanners, so you're not going to run into multiple multiple pages getting fed at the same time. They use a special separation roller uh, to minimize jams. And, of course, it's got the great ScanSnap software that's tied into it. 
uh, you can pop open and you can scan directly to Dropbox, scan uh, directly to a uh, OCR PDF and save it to a folder, scan to your email, scan and print it. Uh, or in her case, what she does is she scans directly as a PDF that's OCR'd into Evernote. Very simple to set up. Um, she even has it configured where with the flick of a button, uh, she scans some pictures sometimes, uh, and those go directly into uh, iPhoto at, at higher resolution. Uh, so the ScanSnap software is just great, and the S1300i has been a great scanner for her. Uh, the 1300i actually has a very good home. Uh, my dad is going to upgrade to the 1300i. He's been using an older model ScanSnap that he needs to upgrade if he's going to go to Yosemite. Um, and although he is happy about getting Getting a 1300i because it's quite an upgrade for him. Yeah, he's he's not really thrilled about the idea that my mom's got the brand new iX500, and uh, I must admit she's given him a little grief about that. So, uh, if you too want to have the top of the line scanner, you can check them out at their website. Uh, look them up at ez.com/ssmpu. That stands for ScanSnap MPU. And thanks to Fujitsu for their support of the show. So, Katie, we uh, we also had some other uh, comments and questions from readers uh, and listeners that I thought were of use. Christopher wrote in, and uh, he used our new Ask MPU hashtag at, at Twitter. Did you know that you could do that? I heard rumors that you could. Yeah. So if you're on Twitter and you write a question and use the hashtag Ask MPU with no space, it, it finds its way to us through the magic of if this, then that and the Internet. So uh, Christopher wrote it and he said, well, what's your thought about confidentiality obligations for lawyers? He said in specific, but I guess this would apply to really anybody and use of cloud services. And the example he used was the OmniSync server. Mm. You know, we've we've talked about this a, a little bit, and, and obviously I want to be cautious here because I don't want to give anybody advice on, you know, that could border on legal advice because the, the situation is going to be different that depends on, you know, what your policies are, what your industry is, what your professional practices dictate. Um, I mean, so obviously the situation is going to vary depending on what the information is, what what your requirements are, what your employer mandates and all of this. But I, I think the, the overarching question is, if you have information that you're concerned about putting in a sync service, what can you do? Um, and there, there are a couple of solutions here. I mean, if you're specifically concerned about the Omni sync service, um, you know, Omni has a web dev option for most of their stuff. So you can set up your own web dev server that you can run yourself um, and sync everything there yourself. I think also part of this is just being conscious of what you're putting up there and what you're not. Like, you know, just as an example, if you were going to have – uh, if you're in a, in a confidential industry, like, okay, I'm not going to put an omni-focused task up on the cloud that says, um, make, you know, here's a list of the seven secret herbs and spices of the Colonel's chicken. You know, you don't put that in the task, but you may say, you know, research herbs and spices, right. you know, something that doesn't give away confidential information. I mean, you just have to be aware of it. And, and in every industry, and frankly, in the law, every state has different rules and ethical obligations about cloud data. Like California is more liberal about cloud data than some states are for lawyers. And, and I guess my advice is, you know, wherever you're practicing, whether you're in medicine or legal or anything else confidential, you know, be careful, make sure you understand what the rules are and just be smart about the way you handle it. I mean, people who listen to our show, I think generally do all those things anyway, but you know, this is something that you don't want to get yourself in trouble with. So be careful. Right. We, we also heard from Jonathan through, via Google plus. 
And he wrote about photos from the iPhone. He says, how do you manage transferring iPhone photos to your computer? I was thinking of using Dropbox to do it automatically, upload them, and then use Lightroom to watch the Dropbox folder and input them. And I think that's a perfectly rational way to do it. Um, how do you do it, Katie? Honestly, I, I let Apple take care of it. Um, you can use Dropbox, um, but I let PhotoSync do it. I turn on PhotoSyncing through iCloud. I actually pay an extra 99 cents a month uh, to, to, I don't mind the extra $12 a year to get some extra storage in iCloud. But the, the iCloud photo stream doesn't count against you uh, in terms of your storage space. So I save all that and then I let iCloud sync it up and I've not had that be a problem. Um, the only time it could be a problem is if you don't launch iPhoto and those things run out of your photo stream. So I do have a Hazel rule that once every week we'll launch iPhoto just to make sure that iPhoto can download all of that stuff. Um, I guess the the real issue is if you're not using iPhoto or whatever the new Apple Photos app uh, system will be, you know, then what do you do? And and for that, then you're going to find another alternative method. Um, because I use iPhoto and because I anticipate that I will use photos, um, keeping with the Apple ecosystem is easy for me. Um, otherwise, you're going to have to find an alternative method. You can, just FYI, manually sync your photos from your from your iPhone. Probably the easiest way to do that is to plug in and use the image capture app to drag things off. But I hate the manual process of doing that because you'll forget and it will be inconvenient and, and you won't do it. Um, so of all of them, the Dropbox sync is, is probably the easiest. Uh, Transporter also has an option to, to sync up your photos. So that's another, that's another one as well. I, and I don't want to um, bypass the image capture app because I think a lot of people don't even know it exists, but if you go on your Mac and, uh, and load the image capture app, and then you connect your iPhone or iPad or even camera uh, via cable to your Mac, it gives you a really convenient way to pull everything off the device, delete the extra photos and video on the device. Like when we have a big family event and I, I shoot a lot of video, I will often use image capture to get all that and kind of put it into one folder. And I've even in the past on some of our family events, if I had a Mac with me, just used image capture to pull copies of images off other people's devices. So then I could have like one folder with all the pictures we took. Yeah, kind of somewhat related to that. We got a related message from Raul saying, you know, how do you manage videos? How do people manage their videos? He says he uses his iPhone to record, edit, and post videos of his kids. But then how should he back up those raw files and content? And I don't know, David, I'll have to defer to you because I really don't take hardly any videos. And the ones that I do are for specific projects that once they're done, they're done. Yeah, well, the, the final product, you, once you share it out, just make sure you share a copy to yourself and put it somewhere. That's I mean, and, and depending on what you do, I mean, it will automatically put it in iTunes or you can go back to image capture. Uh, Raul was talking about keeping like the source of the raw files. And I did that when my kids were young and now I've got, you know, gigabytes and gigabytes of raw video and maybe someday I'll do something with it. But I, I find at this point, once I make the little two minute video of the day, I don't keep the other stuff. I think that's as good as it's ever going to get for me. So um, that that depends. But going back to image capture, that's a great way to get all that stuff on your Mac and have a way to, you know, then you can put it on the Drobo or whatever, you know, cloud storage or whatever you're going to do to keep that stuff archived. All right. 
We heard from Arthur about family journey, journaling. He said, hey, guys, have you covered any options for family journaling? We've recently had a family bereavement, and we've decided as a family from now on to keep a collective journal of photos and memories everyone can contribute to so we can treasure them. And he's been looking everywhere on how to keep a collective family journal like day one, but couldn't find a decent solution. And he wanted to know, you know, what we thought or if he had if we had any ideas for a collective journal. Um, you know, as much as I make fun of Evernote, a shared Evernote folder would seem like a good idea for something like this. Yeah, that was probably the best solution that I could come up with or um, a shared text file. I, I, I throw this out here. I don't know if it will work. I know that day one uses uh, can can sync via Dropbox and can use a Dropbox file. I wonder if you shared that Dropbox file, but I'm thinking that's that's prime for creating havoc. If people, multiple people are trying to write to it at the same time. Well, here's an idea. Have a shared Dropbox folder. That, the, and, that you keep the day one file in, right? No, no. I was oh. thinking that somebody is responsible for day one. Okay, so putting on my propeller beanie cap. Okay. Shared Dropbox folder, and you can drop a text file in there, or you can drop pictures in there. Oh, and then someone's responsible then, for, for curating the day one or making this. Or just have Hazel yank that stuff out of there. And I'm, I suspect with a little bit of work, you could get Hazel to automatically add that text to day one entries. Although I'm not sure if you get the timestamp right. I'd have to kind of fiddle with it. But um, there may be a way to automate that with Hazel and day one on a locally installed Mac. Yeah, I know there's some stuff with Slogger and and if this, then that that you could do to automate pulling from multiple sources to day one. So the question yeah. is, is if you could get the things to those multiple sources, if you wanted to use day one. But I think you're right. I think you're onto something with Evernote there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, Evernote would allow people to really go in and do the editing themselves, whereas if you had a shared Dropbox folder, then somebody's got to be responsible for getting all that together. Yeah, I think you're right. I think Evernote's the, the way to go there. Um, but if you've got a better idea, let us know. And if you've got any other ideas, send us in an audio comment. I really like hearing from people. And uh, those make these shows better. Yeah. Uh, anything big you're playing with this month, Katie? Any yeah, we, we usually like to wrap this up with with kind of new stuff that we're we're using. And um, the the one for me is I'm playing with the audio engine B2 uh, Bluetooth speaker. Um, and I think I got that that name right. Uh, but I'll, I'll double check. But uh, I'm I'm really enjoying it. Uh, it's Audio Engine makes makes great speakers. I've I've got a, a pair of Audio Engine speakers um, in in my home office. I've I've got a couple of different Audio Engine speakers. And um, the Audio Engine B2 Bluetooth speaker, uh, it's it's three hundred bucks. So it's it's more expensive than you know these kind of travel jam box type speakers. But it's a very different class of of product. It's a really high quality. Uh, Bluetooth speaker. It's portable in the sense that you could move it from room to room, but it's really not designed to be portable. It's designed for you to find a place and put this. You know, is this going to go in your kitchen? Is it going to go on your bookshelf? Is it going to go in your bedroom? Um, but it can really pack out the sound. I've been, you know, using it the last couple of weeks to listen to podcasts and to listen to Christmas music. Um, and, you know, the, the connects via Bluetooth, which means it'll work with just about anything. Uh, the audio is is really crisp and clear. It it works. It's better than any Bluetooth speaker I've ever heard, and it's better than a lot of wired speakers that I've heard. It doesn't have the dropout problems that I've had with some of my AirPlay speakers, and so that's kind of what I'm trying to do is get away from the the AirPlay system. Um, and it's it's just absolutely gorgeous. And so you know, it's something that you wouldn't mind putting on your bookshelf or keeping in your kitchen, um, or you know, putting on a piece of furniture and and just having. 
uh, as a as a nice speaker for uh, a small area. I mean, it's probably not going to be your main speakers for your house, but um, as a as a supplement speaker for a room, it's it's no question. It's a it's a great thing. Okay, so we had Skip on, and he talked about paprika. Okay, the recipe manager. I am fully invested in paprika at this point. I've been using it for. I guess I bought it as soon as we finish recording that show and I'm really enjoying it. It's a great place to find interesting and new recipes on the weekends. Um, once in a while, I like to try and cook a meal for my family and this gives me a place to find something good. I even got a, an email from a listener who has the uh, Max Sparky approved bratwurst recipe. Mm. They put in paprika. So that's kind of fun. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I've always known that there are these apps out there to kind of do recipe management and helping with a grocery list. And none of them have ever stuck with me, but paprika has, it just seems like it's the best in class for this stuff. And, uh, you have to buy separate apps. If memory serves, I ended up buying three apps. I think I bought the Mac iPhone and iPad app, but it's been worth it. And I've really been enjoying it. So that's something you may want to check out. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that will about wrap us up for this episode. You can find links to everything that we've talked about. Uh, Lovingly Crafted by Haley. Thank you so much. On our website at MacPowerUsers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. You can also send us feedback to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. And you can find us at Twitter. Oh, you just said Twitter, didn't you, Katie? No, I haven't said it yet. Okay. So Twitter is we're at MacPowerUsers. Katie's at Katie Floyd and I'm at Max Sparky. All right. Thank you for joining us, everybody. Uh, We'll see you next time.